So we have two scriptures this morning. The first lesson comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. And we'll begin reading at verse 8, I believe. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we give you thanks that you have spoken to your people through these words throughout the generations. As we pause to read and to reflect, to ponder, we ask that you might challenge us, that you might refresh us, that you might restore us. Hear us, O Lord, and may we hear you. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen. So this is the very end of the story of, uh, of Noah and the ark. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I think we get the point. So we've embedded it, isn't it? Yeah. Wonderful word. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe in the good news. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm not preaching from up there today. I very purposefully am down here. Um, I often feel that, you know, standing up in a pulpit makes me feel a wee bit definitive. <coughs> And after everything that happened this week, I don't feel 
very definitive. I don't feel very definitive at all. So let me share some thoughts simply from standing down here today. There's a traditional introduction that's often spoken on uh, uh, during an Ash Wednesday service by the, the presiding minister. It goes like this. Friends in Christ, every year at the time of the Christian Passover, we celebrate our redemption through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lent is a time to prepare for this celebration and to renew our life in the Paschal mystery. We begin this holy season by acknowledging our need for repentance and for the mercy and forgiveness proclaimed in the gospel of Christ. When I go home on Wednesday night after we had gathered as a congregation to, to receive the ashes and to be reminded of our, our own brokenness and of our need for repentance, after we've been reminded of the astonishing love that God has for us in the face of our brokenness, I, like many of you, heard the news of yet another school shooting, this time in Parkland, Florida. Having been faced with my own need of repentance, my own need for mercy and forgiveness, even our need for repentance, mercy and forgiveness as a gathered congregation, this, this news, it, it hit me as it must have hit many of you like another fist in the gut. Twitter and Snapchat were loaded with videos of, of the children of Parkland cowering in absolute terror not knowing if they were going to live or die, sending videos and texts and tweets to their mothers, their fathers, their, their brothers, their sisters, never knowing if they were ever going to see them again. If you've got the stamina for it, you can still see so many of these videos online. This was the last will and testament for so many of these wee souls. One of the most devastating images was of a woman, two women, standing outside the school, wailing in their grief. I'm sure you've seen that particular picture. If you look closely at the image, and it's very, very easy to miss it, you can see that this heartbroken mother, teacher, I'm not sure who she is, but she has a mark on her forehead which, although temporary, in that moment has become indelible. She had the sign of the cross in ash on the center of her forehead. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. On Wednesday she faced her humanity in a way that no one should ever have to face their humanity. On Wednesday, 17 lives, 17 babies, 17 futures were snuffed out. And for, and for what reason? Why? Well, we could simply point the finger, couldn't we, at Nicholas Cruz and say that he was a disturbed and an evil young man. We could do that. We could blame the system in which he found himself lost and without any real sense of support since his parents died, 
we, we could do that. We could blame the authorities for not doing enough when they saw how disturbing his digital profile was. We could do that. We could do all of that except for the fact that in the last 40 days, this is the 18th school shooting that's taken place in the United States. Not all of them have been fatal, but there have been 18 of them. Compare that to the fact that in the rest of the world, there have been as many school shootings in the last 20 years. On Ash Wednesday, we're not only faced with our own personal sins, our own personal demons, but this Ash Wednesday, we were faced with the sins and the demons that haunt and terrorize us as a nation. We talk about the importance of our children, how our children are our future. We want the best for them, and yet at the same time, so many are demanding the right to have whatever type of weapons they would like to have. If there are more guns, then we'll be safer. We'll be able to defend ourselves. We'll be able to defend our homes. We'll be able to defend our country, our children. Except as our children that are dying. It looks to me like there's maybe something wrong with our priorities. It looks to me like something may be broken very, very badly. And this Ash Wednesday, once more, we've been forced to face it. But at what cost? At what cost? For us as Christians, it begs a question, doesn't it? A question that comes back time and time again. Whenever we face any type of struggle and suffering, where, where is God in all of this? Where is God? I'd be more of a fool than I look if I were to even attempt to give any kind of definitive answer to that question. But I wonder, I wonder if there might be a clue for us in the passage that we read today from the book of Genesis. The story, about, about, the story of Noah is all about God being so upset with humanity and with himself that God decides to essentially start from scratch. He unmercifully and brutally wipes out all life from the face of the earth. He acts like, like a god of the ancient world, capricious, narcissistic, distant, a god to be feared. And as soon as it's all over, it's, it's almost like God is completely devastated by what God has done. Because what happens in the passage that we read is quite unprecedented. What we see in Genesis 9 is the establishment of the first covenant between God and humans that's laid out, spelled out for us in the Bible. In this case, it's not just a covenant between God and humans but it's between God and all living things. We read that about 15 times in that passage. The covenant I make between God and all flesh. Essentially, it's between God and the whole of creation. In the ancient world, when a covenant was made, it was generally made between a conquering ruler <coughs> and the ruler of the people who had been conquered. So you had someone who had all the power and someone who had no power. There was, a, there was a terrible imbalance there. Someone always had the upper hand. 
Now, in Hebrew, the phrase for making a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. Because what generally happened in the making of a covenant was, was something like this. The one with all the power would take a bull or a, or a sheep or, or some type of large animal and would have the animal slaughtered. And in the presence of the people with whom the covenant was being made, he would, he would, he would place the pieces out to form perhaps some type of a pathway. And then the king would sit the far side and the conquered king with some of his representatives would walk through the path, pass through essentially the severed parts of the animal and the king would sit at the far side and would have one of his representatives read out the terms of the covenant. Now some of these covenants were exceptionally lengthy but the long and the short of it was that if the lesser king or any of his people broke the terms of the covenant then what had happened to the animal through whose parts he was walking would happen to him and to his people. The high king, the powerful king would make sure that that happened. It would be devastating. Genocide. His people would be wiped out if the terms of the covenant were broken. It was generally a unilateral covenant with all the, the positive benefits falling to the, to the powerful king and all the negatives falling to the conquered king and his people if the covenant was broken. But in this covenant that we find in Genesis chapter 9, we find something radically different. God makes a unilateral covenant with Noah that he'll never again destroy the world and the people of the world in an act of utter mercy that's and, and, and never before witnessed grace. He says, if this covenant is broken, may the curse of the covenant fall upon me. You see, the rainbow is not just something pretty that shines in the sky after a rainstorm. It's not a bow that one would tie in one's hair. It's a, it's a bow, an archer's bow. A war bow is what we see. It doesn't just act as a beautiful reminder of God's promise, but it stands as a threat. Not a threat to Noah, not a threat to the people of the world, but it stands as a threat pointing towards God. When my covenant is broken, the bow is pointing at me, says God. I will suffer all the consequences. That bow will loose its bolts towards me. Do you see how the story reflects a, a transformation in God's attitude towards humanity and the world? Utter compassion, sheer mercy, grace beyond measure. The rainbow stands as a promise of hope, of God's solidarity in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our suffering. When we start to destroy ourselves, God's not going to put an end to us. But God's going to enter into our pain 
and our fear and our sorrow and somehow share in that with us. That's why that image, that image of the woman outside the school is so powerful. On her forehead is the cross. More than the rainbow, it reminds us that not only is God threatened by the bow, but in some way beyond our knowing, God has experienced our pain and has entered into our pain and walks beside us in our pain. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, says the psalmist. So what does all this mean? What, what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, it, it feels trite to say, pray for the folks of Parkland, Florida. I read recently a quote from, from a, a contemporary theologian, Miroslav Wolf, who said it is deeply hypocritical to pray for a problem that we are unwilling to resolve. The very least, as children of the God who takes upon himself our wounds, we must walk alongside those who have been wounded with such an immense loss this week. If the cross means anything at this moment, it means hope for those families. It means hope for our broken society. Out of the tragedy that was the cross came new life. It's my hope that we might have the courage as the church, the, the people of God, the people of the cross, that we might be the ones in the name of our crucified Lord into the midst of our culture of death to bring hope, to bring healing, and to bring new life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The hymn is number 379. My hope is built on nothing less. Hymn number 379.